Amen. You may be seated. Jesus Christ was born that we might receive adoption as sons. This is one of the many reasons Jesus came into the world. And our adoption in Christ is an often neglected aspect of our salvation in Christ. To be a Christian is to be adopted into the family of God. There are many really helpful illustrations when it comes to helping us understand what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Being born again, that's really helpful. To be a new creation, that's really helpful. To be saved, that's a very helpful picture. But this picture of adoption is often neglected. It's forgotten about, but it is so helpful in understanding our identity in Christ, and it's helpful in understanding why Jesus came to earth. And so this morning, as we consider the birth of Christ, I would like us to think about four truths as it relates to our adoption as children of God. Number one, the law of God could never turn slaves into sons of God. So when we think about adoption, our adoption into the family of God, the, fir- the place we need to start is that the law of God could never turn us, it could never turn slaves into sons of God. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 2, we see the word guardians. Guardians. And this is in reference to the law of God. And the law of God is a good thing. It's something that God gave to his people for our good. And the law was designed to bring us to Christ. It was to be our guardian until Christ came. But the law was never designed to produce our adoption as children of God. And we need to understand the way our human hearts work. Oftentimes what we do is we'll take something that's good, given to us by God, like the law, and then we will try to make it the means by which we're made right with God. So we, we can begin to think the, the, the way into the family of God is to be a good person. The way in to be made right with God is to do our best, to, to keep the Ten Commandments, to go to church. We can think that is the basis by which God will adopt us. That is the basis God will bring us into his family. We begin to believe that lie. But Paul is arguing in Galatians 4 that the law was never designed to make us children of God. I was at the mall the other day doing some Christmas shopping, and the mall was totally packed, just flooded with people. And I, I was just going about my business, but there's this, this family in front of me, and there's, there was this three-year-old boy, maybe he was four years old, but a little boy, and he was attached to a monkey leash, okay? So he, was, he had this little monkey leash. He had a little backpack on and with a monkey, and then there was the monkey, the monkey tail. Was, his, his mom was holding onto him by the monkey tail. Now, ha- have any of you seen that before, a little kid on a leash? Uh, how many of you are still in counseling because you were the kid on the monkey leash? <laughs> I mean, the, the monkey leash. Now, now, is that bad to have your kids on a monkey leash? Uh, it's not inherently bad. There are some benefits. I mean, it'll keep your kid from getting lost or falling into a cave or whatever it is. But there's a, a limited benefit, limited benefit to the monkey leash. Benefit, but limited benefit. And this is what Paul is arguing. He's arguing that the law, the law of God is good, but there's limited benefit limited benefit. It was designed until Christ came. The law could never turn slaves into sons. The law could never produce the adoption, our adoption into the family of God. Only Christ can turn slaves into sons. Only Christ can bring sinful people into the family of God. Recently, someone asked me a good question. They asked, if everyone is a child of God, Why did Jesus come to make us children of God? If everyone is a child of God, why did Jesus come to make us children of God? This is a great question. And the premise of the Bible and the the premise of Galatians chapter 4 is that sin has alienated us from God. 
that sin has destroyed our relationship with our heavenly Father. And so what is true of us, apart from the grace of God, is that all people, every person on the planet, is created in the image of God. All people are worthy of dignity and respect. They should be treated with love and dignity and respect. There's no doubt about that. But not all people are children of God. In fact, most people on planet Earth are not children of God. Look at the contrast in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. The contrast is between a slave and a son. And slaves are not sons, and sons are not slaves. So he says you're no longer a slave, meaning you used to be a slave, but now you're a son. Now you're in the family of God, which means God, for, for, for most people on planet Earth, God is not their father. So to what are we slaves? Who, who are we enslaved to? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 8 that human beings are slaves of sin, that we sin not because we make mistakes every once in a while, but human beings sin. We sin because we're actually slaves of sin. And then he goes on to argue in John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I did not come on my own, but, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. Verse, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. The human condition, apart from the grace of God, is that we're slaves of sin, sons of Satan, and under the wrath of God. Now, some of you are thinking, I am so happy I came to church today <laughs> to, to learn that I'm a slave of sin and a son of Satan under the wrath of God. It's not a very popular message, but this is what the Bible teaches. And we cannot understand Christmas until we understand who we are without Christmas. We cannot even understand why Christ came into the world until we understand what we are apart from Christ. If we are already children of God, if everyone on planet Earth is already a child of God, then it makes no sense for Jesus to come to make us children of God. It doesn't make any sense at all. At best, if we are all children of God, then Jesus came to be our teacher. But Jesus could have taught us from heaven. He did not have to come to be our teacher. The Old Testament is God speaking to his people. See, Jesus came not only to be our teacher, Jesus came into the world because we need a savior. Uh, we need him to do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And the law could never accomplish this. The law could never make us children of God. This is why Christ came, and this is why we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Joy to the world. He has come to be our savior. Truth number two is that adoption is costly. Adoption is costly. Truth number one, the law can never, could never make us sons. Adoption, or truth number two, adoption is costly. And there are so many families in our church who have adopted children. And if you've adopted a child, you know better than anyone that adoption is costly. It will cost you financially, emotionally, relationally. It will cost you in every way. And verse four. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This phrase, God sent his son, speaks of divine sacrifice. It was not free for God to adopt you into his family. There is, there is divine sacrifice where the father sent the son. The son willingly left the glory of heaven for us. 
that the creator of the universe, the limitless God of the universe, embraced the limitations of human existence. Why? Verse 5, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Before we could be adopted, we had to be redeemed. Before God could adopt us and bring us into his family, our legal problem, our guilt problem, our sin problem before God had to be dealt with. And how did he do that? How did Christ redeem us? Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Verse 10 explains why Christ came into the world. Why did he come into the world? Because everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now this is a profound truth. This is a statement about the nature of reality, the nature of the world, that everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is under a curse. And so let me ask you, have you done everything in the law? Do you, do you even know what the law says? Have you done everything? Have you done everything in the law? Have you kept the law without fail? Have you ever lied? The answer is yes. The Bible says you're cursed. You're cursed. Have you ever stolen? Stolen anything? Yes. You're cursed. Have you ever committed sexual sin? You're cursed. In your anger, have you ever sinned? You're cursed. We are under the curse of sin. This is why Christ came. He came because we're under the curse of sin. And it says that Jesus was born of a woman, that God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, meaning he was born of a woman, born under the law to live the life that God requires of us. He came, he came to keep the law perfectly for us. And after he kept the law perfectly, Jesus never sinned. He is the, the spotless son of God. He is a savior, a lamb without blemish. He kept the law of God perfectly. And after he kept the law perfectly, look what happened to him, to him in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. When was Christ cursed? Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So when you think about Christ on the, on the cross, what's happening there? What the scriptures teach is that Jesus was cursed. But why was he cursed? He had no sin. He had no sin. You're absolutely right. He wasn't cursed for his own sin. He was cursed for our sin. See, we, we deserve to be cut off from God forever. We deserve the curse of God forever. But Christ, Christ was made a curse for us on the cross. Where all of our sin and all of our guilt was punished at the cross on our behalf. The price of our freedom, the price of our forgiveness is the blood of Christ. That is the only payment God would accept that would pay for our sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. See, he, he paid our debt by his blood that we might receive adoption as sons. See, he died. He bled and died to take away our sins that we might be brought into the family of God. And this should teach us much about the depth of God's love for you. How much does God love you? And how do you know he loves you? 
the cross. I mean, Christmas is about the love of God, that God sent his son to be cursed for you. He sent his son to die for you, that we might become children of God. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has given us. You need to see it. Do you see the great love that God has given us, God the Father has given us? That we should be called God's children, and we are. And we are. So many of you have kids, and you know, when you look at your kids, you're like, those kids, they are my treasure. That's the way you feel about your kids, don't you? It doesn't matter how old you are. If you have a newborn baby, or if your kids are grown, you look at your kids and you say, they are my treasure. How much more does God the Father look at his children and say, they are my treasure? And so John says, see what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children And we are. We ought not to ever forget the cost of our redemption. We should never forget the price of our adoption. In order for us to be redeemed, Christ had to be cursed for us. So adoption is costly. Number three, adoption is relational. Adoption is relational, Galatians 4, 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? So he says, but now. What does that mean, but now? But now you've been adopted. Now you're sons of God. Now you're in the family of God. He says, but now that you know God. To be a Christian is to know God. This is why Jesus came, not just to save us from hell. He did did come to save us from, from hell, yes and amen. But he came that we might know God, that we might belong to the family of God. Our deepest need is to know God. What's wrong with our country? A lot's wrong with our country. But what's wrong with our country? Our country does not know God. We do not fear God. We do not love God. We do not worship God. The deepest need is not economic reform. The deepest need of our country is that we would know God. We would would rightly worship our creator, that that our knee would bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Our deepest need is to know God. Our highest joy, our greatest good is to know God. And that happens through the redemption and adoption that is in Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 9, but now that you know God, and then he adds this, he says, scratch that. Or, or rather, you are known by God. He says, but now that you know God, he's like, okay. Or rather, you're known by God. Not only do we know God through Christ, but we are known by God through Christ. Imagine we went to an event, a big event, and Elon Musk is speaking at the event, and the time comes for Elon to walk up on stage, and I'm sitting right next to you, and I just nudge you. I'm like, hey, that's Elon Musk. How impressed are you going to be with me that I know who Elon Musk is? Zero percent. Not impressed at all. It's like, what, 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 what do you mean? That's why we came. What, do you, what are we talking about here? That's Elon Musk. Not impressed at all. But what if midway through his talk, Elon Musk says, um, you know, I just want to take a minute and invite my good friend Dan Root up on the stage. And I come up on stage and he gives me a handshake and gives me a hug. What's the first question you're going to ask? You're going to say, how in the world does Dan know Elon Musk? I mean, Elon is really smart and really rich. And Dan, you're just 
you're just you, you know, like, how do you know Elon Musk? How did that even happen? You'd be so impressed with me. You would tell all your friends, you know, Dan knows Elon Musk. You would be very impressed. And see, the, the point Paul is making, the point Paul is making is that what is so incredible about our, our salvation is that we know God more than that, more important. It's that God knows you. Doesn't God know everything? He certainly knows everything, and he knows everyone. So what does Paul mean in Galatians 4? He means he knows you as his child. He knows you like a father knows his son. See, how does the rest of the world know God? The rest of the world, apart from the grace of God, is at war with God. The rest of the world, enemies of God. But in Christ, we're sons. He knows us as a father knows his son. You know, my kids, I have five kids, and they are never far from my mind. They are never far from my heart. And I know it's the same way with you. If you have kids, they're never far from your heart. And I would gladly die for my kids. You guys, probably not. You know, some of you I probably would die for. But, but my kids, I would gladly die for them. And if I'm that committed to my kids as a flawed, sinful human being, and you're that committed to your kids as flawed, sinful human beings, how much more is God committed to us, our perfect Heavenly Father? I mean, He is committed to you. And God is not just willing to die for us. The Son of God did die for us. He did. He's already proved His love. He's demonstrated His love. His commitment to you by sending his son into the world. Verse 6. And because you are sons, you have this new identity. Who are you? Because you are sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. To be a Christian is to be given the Holy Spirit. I mean, why does God give us the Holy Spirit? 100 reasons. One of them. Is from Ephesians chapter 1, is that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. It's the guarantee of our salvation. At the most fundamental level, to be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit. There are a couple hundred people in this room right now, and some people have the Holy Spirit and some people don't. How do you decide who's a Christian? If we sing the same songs, if we hear the same, we hear the same words, if we take the same bread and the same cup, how do we know who's a Christian and who's not? Christians have the Spirit of God. All who have the Spirit of God belong to God. If you do not have the Spirit of God, Romans chapter 8, you do not belong to him. And Paul's arguing, because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He is the down payment of our inheritance. He is the guarantee of our salvation. Another reason God has given us the Holy Spirit is because we need power. We need power in the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 3, 16 through 20, Paul talks about the power that we have in Christ. He says, don't you know that the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that God has given you in his spirit? The spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the spirit that God has given to his children. We need power. We, we could list 100 reasons why God sent the spirit. But in Galatians chapter 4, there's one primary reason that jumps out. It's that God gives the spirit of his son to his sons 
to help his sons live like sons. That God has sent the spirit of his son to his sons to help his sons live like children of God. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. That's what kids do. They cry out to their dad. He's saying he's given us the spirit of his son to help his sons live like sons, to live like children of God, to nurture our relationship with God, to know God, to teach us to be like the son of God. I mean, wouldn't it be incredible if Jesus was standing like right next to me, like right here, right next to you? Wouldn't that be awesome if he was sitting like, like physically right next to him? You can get handshake, you know, knucks or whatever. You just stand right next to you sitting right next to you, physically. That would be awesome. But what the New Testament teaches us is that Christ in us is better than Christ next to us. That Christ in us is better than Christ next to us. Jesus says, I'm going to my Father. And the disciples say, oh, no, don't do that. Don't leave us. We need you. And he says, it's better that I go. Because if I, if I stay here, the Father will not send the Spirit. And it's, it's in your best interest that I go. Because when I go, then the Spirit, the God the Father will send the Spirit to his people. See, see, Christ in us is better than Christ next to us. And so Paul's saying, do you know that since you're a son, God has sent the Spirit of his Son to us, in us, that we might live like children of God. And notice where the Spirit of God dwells in his people. Verse six, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son, where? Into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That the spirit dwells with our spirit. Could God get any closer to you? Could God get any closer to you than to send the spirit of Christ to dwell with your spirit? That's the Christian life. What a reality the spirit of Christ in us. And this truth is what changes everything. Life in the spirit of God is what changes everything. When I was in high school, a bunch of people were hanging out uh, at my house, a bunch of guys, there were probably eight or nine guys sitting in my living room, and it's like, I don't know, it's like nine o'clock at night, and we're looking at each other, what are we gonna do tonight? And someone said, we should go rent a movie. Let's go to Blockbuster and rent a movie. If you don't know what Blockbuster is, ask your parents. They'll, they'll probably know. Let's go to Blockbuster. And so we're looking at each other. We're like, ah, oh, we don't want to go. And then someone says, I have Dumb and Dumber in my car. I have, I have, I have the, the DVD, Dumb and Dumber, in my car. And we had all seen that movie a number of times. We said, yeah, let's watch that movie. We got pumped up. Okay, let's, let's watch the movie. He goes out, grabs Dumb and Dumber, comes back in, puts Dumb and Dumber in, lights turn off roughly 10 high school boys in my living room watching Dumb and Dumber. Five minutes in, my mom, she had never done this before, my mom just walks into the room, Nancy Rude, five foot three, Nancy Rude, sweet Nancy Rude. She sits right next to me. And she goes, what are you watching? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, why is this hard? It's hard. Okay, we're watching Dumb and Dumber, Dumb and Dumber, Mom. She goes, okay. And so now I'm watching Dumb and Dumber with my high school friends and my mom at the same time, sitting in, in my living room. Have you ever tried watching Dumb and Dumber with your mom? <laughs> oh, man. So it was, it was awful. And um, first, 
the movie, Dumb and Dumber, is not as funny when your mom is right next to you. It's just, it's just not. Like, no one laughed at the movie. Dumb and Dumber term, turned into a murder mystery thriller. Nobody's laughing. Second, I became immediately aware of all the inappropriate aspects of Dumb and Dumber. My mom's right here, and I'm like, ooh, ooh, is this a different version of Dumb and Dumber? What is going on? I became immediately aware. And my mom, so sweet, she didn't say a word. She just sat there. She just sat there. But see, my awareness of my mom's presence right next to me changed the equation. And you've all had that experience. You've had that experience where someone will enter the room and they'll sit next to you or you'll talk to someone and it's like just their presence changes the equation. And what Paul is saying is, don't you know that the spirit of Christ dwells in you? Not next to you, in you. What would happen in your life if you lived in the reality that God's Holy Spirit is in you, what would happen to you? Number one, you would talk to your spouse differently. You'd talk to your spouse differently. What you would watch would be different in private. I mean, just a hundred dominoes would begin to fall. Everything begins to change when I live in the awareness, with the awareness that The spirit of Christ is in me. And this is such good news. It's such good news because that means, do you want to walk with God today? You can. You're a Christian. You can know God today in your seat. You can know him. And when you go home, you can walk with him. And when you go to work, you can walk with him. And the more you read the word of God and the more you pray and the more you walk by faith, the more you will understand the leading of God's Holy Spirit in your life. And the more you walk with him by faith and obey him, the more and more you act like children of God. You act like your big brother, Jesus Christ. And you become a new man, a new person. It's good news. It's good news. It's relational. We've been adopted into the family of God that we might know God, that our hearts might cry out, Abba, Father that we might know God. It's relational. Truth number four, adoption is glorious. It's glorious. So the law can never make us sons of God. Only Christ can do that. Adoption is costly. It's relational, and it is glorious. Our adoption into the family of God, it is glorious. Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave. Who are you? If you're a Christian, you are no longer a slave. It's not who you are. You're not a slave to drugs. You're not a slave to alcohol. You're not a slave to porn. You're not a slave to anger. You're not a slave to bitterness. You're not a slave. He has made you a new person. You're no longer a slave. Okay, so if I'm not a slave, then what am I? So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. This is the point he's driving to. Not only did he redeem us by becoming a curse for us on the cross, but he adopted us into his family. 
And not only did he adopt us, but he gave us the Holy Spirit. And not only did he give us the spirit of his son, but he has made us heirs. Heirs. Whoa. Now, some of you have probably been asking yourself the question. You've probably, probably been asking yourself the question, why doesn't Paul say that God, in Christ, we've been adopted as sons and daughters? Did you notice that? Sons, sons, sons. No sons and daughters, sons. Why does he do that? And some people will take this information and they'll say, see, the Bible's against women. See, Paul was against women. So why doesn't Paul say you've been adopted as sons and daughters of God? Well, I want you to go back into the region of Galatia 2,000 years ago. It's a region of the world under the Roman Empire. And there are a bunch of churches in that region. And you go to one of those churches and there are 50 people there, 100 people there, whatever it is. And this letter is being read to a, to a church, old and young, rich and poor, male and female. And the part comes, Galatians 4. And Paul writes, you are now sons and daughters. How would women in the first century heard that news? Would they have been happy? Would it have been, would it have been liberating? Would it have been good news? The answer is no way. They would have said, oh. It would not have been good news. Sons and daughters, not good news. Why? Because daughters had no inheritance. They had no inheritance. What, what religion in the world and what culture in the history of the world has ever given an inheritance to women? None. Nobody. You might get a little bit. You might get a little bit in some cultures at some periods of time. And if you were royalty, you had access to something a little bit different. But the culture, the idea of the normal people gaining an inheritance, daughters gaining an inheritance was not practiced widely at all. And so for Paul to say, you're now daughters in Christ, it would be to say, women, you're still second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. That's what it would mean. It would not have been good news. And so Paul makes arguably the most pro-woman statement he can make by saying, ladies, in the kingdom of God, you are sons. You are sons. No second-class citizen, but you have full rights, a full citizenship, a full inheritance, full access to God. No second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. It would have been good news. They would have heard it. Me? A woman? I'm a son in the family of God? This is one of the most pro-women statement, statements that's ever been made. And let me explain how wild and revolutionary this is. Today, if you hear today, if you heard there's a family, $10 million, mom, dad, $10 million, they have four kids, two boys, two girls, and that, that mom and dad gave Five million to one son, five million to another son, and zero to their daughters. What would you think to yourself? You would think that's wrong. Why? Atheism? No. Atheism provides no justification for why daughters should share in the inheritance. Islam? No. Hinduism? No. Judaism? No. Why do you think that women should be co-heirs in a family 
It's because in the kingdom of God, those that the Lord Jesus saves, women that he saves, are sons, full inheritance, no second-class citizens. And so now, 2,000 years later, we look around, and we, we don't even think about it. We just know our daughters are heirs to whatever we have. And it's right. And it's modeled after this reality of being adopted into the family of God as sons. It's an incredible reality. And so this is good news for women. It's good to be sons of God. Now, what is our inheritance? What is our inheritance? Two words. The first word is everything. To sum it up, what is our inheritance? Everything. In 1 Corinthians 3, we find the Corinthian church bickering, arguing over who are the best Christians and who are the best Christian leaders. It still happens today. It's happened for 2,000 years. Some were saying, I follow Paul. No, Apollos. No, I just follow Christ. No, I follow Cephas. And they were dividing. They had become tribal over what leaders were the best leaders. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3, decides to speak into the division. Now, how does Paul address the division of ranking leaders? 1 Corinthians 3.21. So let no one boast in human leaders. Why? Incredible. For everything is yours. What? So let no one boast in human leaders. For everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. What does God own? What does he own? Everything. What does Christ inherit? Everything. So what is our inheritance? Everything. Everything. It all belongs to us. It all belongs to us. This is Paul's argument. Don't you know? Why are you ranking people? No, no. Don't you get it? We inherit everything. I'm going to say something a little bit weird. I hope this is a safe place. Is it okay? If not, you can tell me, tell me later. <laughs> but... I never have a context to say this, so I just don't say it because it's too weird. But sometimes when I go to the mountains, I go to the mountains, and I, I, I just am blown away by the mountains. Or I'll go to the ocean, I'm blown away by the ocean. And do you know what I think to myself when I'm on, on a mountain? I think, this is mine. It's mine. It's ours. It belongs to us, the ocean. It's ours. We own everything. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The humble, the meek, those in the kingdom of God, the forgotten about, the arrested, the slandered, the crucified, the forgotten, the poor, who are in the kingdom, Jesus says, you will inherit the earth. Why? Because we share in the inheritance of the son. If a son, then an heir. Co-heirs with Christ. This is why if you have Christ, you have everything. And if you have everything without Christ, you have nothing. If you have Christ, you have everything. But to have everything without Christ is to have nothing. And this is the appeal that Christ makes to the world. Give up your sin. Give up your old life. Give up your pride. Give up your selfishness. Give all of that up and trade it in for eternal life. He says, come follow me. Give me your life. Put your faith in Christ to be forgiven, to be given the spirit, to be given eternal life. So we are heirs of everything in Christ. The second word is the word glory. 
glory. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is so outrageous that the God of eternal glory, the God who's at the center of unending praise, left the glory of heaven, became a man, and suffered rejection. He was scorned. He was treated so, with such incredible hatred. And then he was murdered on the cross. He became a curse for us. Why? That we, who deserve hell, might share in his glory forever. That's our future. Our future is to share in the glory of Christ forever. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. What has Christ done? He's bringing us into glory. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things should exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Verse 11. The one, for the one who sanctifies, who's that? Jesus. And those who are sanctified, us. All have one Father. For the one who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, us, all have one Father. Application. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Like when Jesus looks at the people he has redeemed, he says, you are my brother. You are my sister. He is not ashamed to call us brother and sister. It's, incredible. it's an incredible reality when you consider. I mean, look, think about your life for a moment. I mean, who should be ashamed of who? I mean, I am ashamed of myself at times. I think, I can't believe what I said. I can't believe what I did. But Jesus was perfect. And he looks at us, those that he's redeemed. He says, I'm not ashamed of you. Why is he not ashamed of us? Because Christ already bore our shame. All the shame of our sin, all the shame that our wickedness has produced, he's already paid for. He's already dealt with. He dealt with it at the cross. So that now and forever, he will never be ashamed of you. He will never be ashamed of you. And he will never leave you. And he will share his inheritance with us forever. It's an incredible truth. And so I just want to close by encouraging all of us. We talked about this last week, but I encouraged all of us to, to consider one person, uh, to start praying for one person who doesn't know Christ. And then I want to encourage you to take this opportunity, one person, one family, whoever it is, to share the good news with them about what Christ has done. I mean, this is, this is the natural outworking that when we understand what Christ has done for us, it should make its way out in our hearts and our mouths, telling people joy to the world. We bring you good news of great joy for all people that today in the city of David, a savior is born, Christ the Lord. It is good news. And so have you, found, have you been able to find that one person, a neighbor, friend, coworker, to pray for and then to tell about what Christ has done for them? We ought not miss the opportunity during this Christmas season and we ought not to let shame stop us. You know, when you feel that impulse of shame welling up in your heart, I just want to encourage you to remember that Christ is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. 
So don't be ashamed of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for all that you've done for us. I, I just pray.